This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 9th of July 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, and what a beautiful Saturday it is here in London. Today, the television and radio broadcaster Petra Cialoni will join me in the studio to review the day's newspapers, and then Andrew Muller offers his sideways take on the news cycle. We would like at this time to make it clear that if any or indeed all of this has been overtaken by events by the time you hear it, then you too can blame Boris Johnson. Absolutely. There is so much that's happened this week and we'll be having a look at all of the front pages that uh, talk about uh, the chaos that surrounds not only this country, but sadly, the world. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. First, though, here's the news. The body of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was killed on Friday morning, has arrived at his home in Tokyo. A night vigil will be held on Monday, with Abe's funeral to take place on Tuesday. Campaigning has now resumed on the final day of electioneering before polling for the Upper House of Parliament, which is expected to deliver victory to the ruling coalition led by the incumbent Fumio Kishida and Abe protégé. In Canada, Rogers Telecommunications said its network was beginning to recover late on Friday after a 19-hour service outage at one of the country's biggest telecom operators shut banking, transport and government access for millions, drawing outrage from customers and adding to criticism over its industry dominance. Nearly every facet of life has been disrupted, with the outage affecting internet access, cell phone and landline phone connections. And Elon Musk wants to pull out of his bid to buy the social media platform Twitter for $44 billion. Musk, the world's richest person, says the deal has soured because Twitter failed to provide enough information on the number of spam and fake accounts. Twitter says it plans to pursue legal action to enforce the agreement. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Right, just coming up to three minutes past nine, I'm Georgina Godwin. We're sitting here on this glorious summer day in London at Midori House and I'm joined by my good friend, the broadcaster Petra Cialoni. Good morning. Good morning, how are you? It's really lovely to have you in studio. Lovely should, to be back. We should tell the listeners that quite often we are the only people awake. We feel very early yeah. in the morning and on our way to work, which is when we mostly communicate at sort of pre-dawn hours with kind of blurry text. Uh, that's because, of course, you too have an early morning programme. Tell us about to your job. Yes, I introduce classical music to listeners in the UK on the BBC, on Radio 3, which is the BBC's Classical Music and Arts channel. I present the breakfast show from 6.30 to 9. Lovely mix of music, a little bit of news, stuff to get you out at the beginning of the day. But it's been something of a refuge, I think, in recent weeks, recent years perhaps, um, in recent weeks with the shenanigans at Westminster. But before that, during Covid, I think people just got sort of fed up with a a kind of, you know, never-ending series of stories on one subject. So 
turn for turn to classical music first thing in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you do other things too. So, for instance, mm. you you present the prompt. I do, which start on Friday at the Royal Albert Hall in London, and that's really good news. We are back a hundred percent to normal this year with the proms. Eight weeks, every concert will be sold to capacity, so there'll be six thousand people in the Royal Albert Hall, about four and a half thousand with seats, fifteen hundred standing in the arena right in front of the orchestra. We have international orchestras coming from Australia, from Vienna, from Germany, uh, from America. Uh, we uh, have the normal programme of concerts with two or three concerts a day. Last year we just did six weeks and we had to limit the audience. The year before we did two weeks and we had no audience in the hall at all. So it's really splendid to see a bit of normality returning. The proms are quite a British institution mm. and nothing I, I didn't really understand what they were or how they worked mm. when I first got here mm. until somebody took me and, and they put up a little tent in Hyde Park and we sat there and ate quail's eggs. It was very odd. <laughs> uh, can you just explain to our non-British audience what, what exactly what are the problems? Well, they started at the end of the 19th century. Uh, Henry Wood, who was a conductor, teamed up with an impresario who wanted to put on a series of concerts in a hall very near here, the Queen's Hall, which uh, was just off Oxford Street near the BBC's headquarters at Broadcasting House. That's where the series started. Uh, in 1927, they were basically about to go bust, and the nascent BBC, which had only launched five years earlier, stepped in and took over the proms. They needed music and concerts to fill air time, so it made sense. And ever since then, the BBC has funded what has become the world's greatest classical music festival. I mean, it used to be a very popularist season back in the Victorian times. Now it's, it's a real mix of popular works, new music, commissions, international orchestras, electronic music, you know, the stuff that is very user-friendly and stuff that might frighten some people. Uh, <laughs> and it all comes together rather well. So the BBC sort of took it over in 1927 and has funded it ever since and broadcast it ever since on radio and television. The Queen's Hall was bombed during the Blitz. There's a wonderful picture of Sir Henry Wood walking on the rubble uh, when he was due to conduct that night a concert there. And it immediately moved to the Royal Albert Hall, where it's been ever since. And there are, there are various tropes that occur Every single mm. year. Uh, mm. I'm thinking about, um, what's it called? Well, that's the last night. And the, the, the last night of the proms is very different to the rest of the season. Everyone goes a bit mad. There's lots of red, white and blue flags, lots of European flags now, lots of international flags. The second half of the last night follows a very formal programme, which includes the hornpipe that you just sang very beautifully, Land of Hope and Glory, <laughs> Rule Britannia, uh, the national anthem in the Benjamin Britten version. And it's a real sort of party. Lots of people are letting off, you know, hooters and uh, bunting and uh, stuff like that. But the rest of it is actually a very straightforward series of, of concerts. And what's extraordinary, it's really the, the kind of biggest concert audience for a regular series. You know, most concerts will seat 2,000, maybe three at most, so to have 6,000 people in there. But the level of listening is absolutely extraordinary more focused, I think, than anywhere else I've ever been to. So you're there for a concert with 6,000 people and you can hear a pin drop. People listen with absolute attention. And then as soon as the music finishes, they, you know, let go with a great roar of applause and, and, and then relax for a bit. But it's, it's a really fabulous, it's an extraordinary festival. It is very British, but it's also very international. It's very European. It's very much British culture looking overseas and welcoming international musicians and artists and composers back to London. It's a broadcast festival. It's a live festival. Well, if anyone's in London while the problems are on, come, because it is it is really unique. Mm. Patrick, I was just sort of watching you talk there and remembering how we first came across each other, and it was a panicked phone call from a mutual friend saying that you were in Zimbabwe, you'd been arrested, and I think you'd broken your arm. 
<laughs> dislocated my shoulder, yes, okay. which still hurts occasionally. When it gets cold and damp, I get a little bit of kind of uh, my old sort of war wound. Yeah, and I, I was there actually involved in, in classical music there. There's a remarkable music academy in Bulawayo, uh, the uh, Zimbabwe Academy of Music, which despite the chaos of the country that you know very well, has survived and is still teaching people to play the violin, to play the piano, to sing, has orchestras based there, African music uh, from there as well. Uh, uh, and it's, it's a remarkable institution that somehow somehow has kept going mm. and uh, I've, I've been very proud to, to, to work raising money for it and, and, and helping set up projects from, from over here for, uh, for I suppose 10 years now maybe a longer. Well of course the whole world is opening up again as yes. we can see by the proms and you have been travelling Well I have, I've actually, I went uh, in 2020 I got to Slovakia for three days and in 2021 I got to Copenhagen for three days but other than that I didn't leave the UK so it's fabulous to be able to go abroad again. Um, I've been travelling a bit over the past couple of weeks. I went to Budapest and I was very keen to um, I'm very keen to, to just try and reduce my uh, flight uh, uh, the number of flights I take and, and, and have a slightly more green footprint when I'm travelling. So I went by train uh, which is basically a 24 hour journey from London. You get the Eurostar to Paris uh, there's an overnight train that runs from Paris to Vienna that leaves Paris at 7 o'clock. Uh, the attendant came and put down my bed as we passed through Strasbourg. Um, I took a sleeping pill, fell asleep, briefly stirred in Karlsruhe and then woke up in Linz in Austria at 9 o'clock the next morning, had breakfast, we rolled into Vienna at 11 and then it's two hours on to Budapest. So it's about a 24-hour trip. How civilised. But it was incredibly civilised. I read tons. There was no of that, none of that sort of airport stress. Um, it was more expensive than flying, but not hugely more expensive. Flights have got much more expensive. And I, I flew back, but it just feels that I'm going to try and do that now with European trips where it's practical to do one leg by train, because you also get so much done on the train. Mm, absolutely. It's a really wonderful way to mm. travel. And we really need to sort out the rail system here in Britain, I think. We do, and I think that will happen. I think we're moving ever closer to some sort of renationalisation and some sort of unity. So rather than having a, a, a dozen different train operating companies is all doing slightly different things. My sense is we will eventually drift back to, to something that's kind of run for the nation, by the nation. I mean, highly commendable to reduce your carbon footprint and, of course, really, really necessary because we're yeah. seeing the effects of climate change absolutely everywhere, not least with these glaciers. Well, I went from Budapest to Italy, uh, to Umbria, to uh, Lake Trasimeno, uh, Perugia, uh, the nearest city. And I've been there, I suppose, three or four times over the past decade. And I was staggered at how low the water is in Lake Trasimeno. You can really see it must be about a foot, uh, half a metre lower than it is normally. There's a new island that's appeared. You can see it's quite a shallow lake anyway, but you can see a lot of uh, uh, greenery and, and underwater growth that you couldn't see previously. And it's only the beginning of the summer, so there's three months to go before there's likely to be any rain. So that was a very visual and very obvious environmental uh, issue. At the same time, while I was there, this terrible uh, uh, disaster of a collapsing glacier uh, in Italy, which has killed 10 people. Um, and there's a very interesting piece about that in the New York Times today. Experts saying that up to half of the glaciers in the Alps may disappear by 2050. A report by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change this year uh, predicts irreversible loss of glaciers by the end of the century. As they melt, 
they cause all sorts of problems. Obviously, there's a, a danger to people on the mountains. There's a danger to villages and valleys underneath. It messes up the, the, the water supply, which water is often kept in, in reservoirs uh, at the tops of, of mountains. There's also an interesting line in the uh, New York Times piece is the possibility of finding old ordnance. The glaciers were in the uh, front line of World War I between Austria-Hungary and Italy, and Austro-Hungarian soldiers bored tunnels deep into the ice. Uh, the retreating of the glaciers has sometimes exposed the remains of soldiers... Uh, and indeed uh, weapons and, and, and bombs and, and, and other material of war. But it, it does feel that we've now, from, from what the New York Times is saying, we've gone too far. You know, we can't now. Uh, whatever we do now is not going to save all those glaciers in Italy, which is pretty depressing. Absolutely. Other depressing news, sorry to hang on, but uh, Shinzo Abe, what a shock mm. uh, to see the assassination of, of the Japanese former president, now Prime Minister. Uh, we've been reporting on this. Uh, we came on air on Friday morning. He'd just been shot. Yeah. Uh, by the time of our lunchtime programme, it was in fact confirmed that he was dead. And really, uh, lots and lots of uh, world leaders, including um, uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir Putin, both people mm. who are not friends of Japan, <laughs> mm. uh, saying how much he will be missed. He was a very great statesman for that region. Yeah, he really was. And I think it's it, it's shocking for two reasons. I mean, first of all, this world figure who, you know, Abenomics, uh, the, the, the financial system that he introduced to Japan, he really turned the country around as, as Prime Minister over several terms of office. But also, we don't hear of shootings in Japan. They have incredibly strict gun laws. It's virtually impossible for anyone to have a gun. Um, we're, we're sort of, we seem to have almost forgotten already about the Chicago shooting last weekend because it's so commonplace. But, mm. but in Japan, we don't expect that. Uh, there are obituaries in, in most of the papers this morning. Um, the Times, the London Times, central to his vision of rejuvenating Japan with the three arrows of abnomics, aggressive monetary easing, fiscal stimulus, and structural reforms. As a result, corporate uh, Japan boomed. He opened up the country to foreign residents, tourists and investment. Uh, during his tenure, the country hosted the Rugby Union World Cup and should have hosted the Olympics in 2020, of course. He came from a, a, a family of politicians. His grandfather, I think there's some doubt over his exact role during the Second World War, um, but his his father was then a politician, was Japanese foreign minister. So it was kind of inevitable that, uh, that Abe himself was going, to go, was going to go into politics. His he, father was stabbed multiple times. Times, yeah, wasn't he, he was. Yes, I think he was. Yeah, yeah. extraordinary. So, so really, you know, a man who, a man who took uh, took Japan and moved it into modern times. And very interestingly, he argued quite forcefully uh, that Japan should be able to stop apologising for what happened during World War Two, the seventieth anniversary of the start of World War Two. He saw as very much a line to be drawn in the sand, and he took the view that that people born in Japan after the war, he was born uh, a decade after the war had finished, shouldn't have to go on apologising for for the sins of their their grandfathers. So he felt that you know this was a moment to 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 to, to, to draw a line and and, and say we've apologised enough. Mm. Well, of course, there's another former leader who hasn't apologised at all, uh, but he also tells us that we must draw a line, we must move on. He's refusing to answer uh, any of the questions surrounding his very, uh, well, questionable behaviour. And yeah. that, of course, is Boris Johnson. Before we have a look at the extremely large coverage of this story, let's hear what Andrew Muller has to say. We learned this week the names of quite a lot of hitherto unfamiliar members of the United Kingdom's House of Commons and the titles of the entrancingly recherche ministerial and sub-ministerial portfolios they occupied. 
We learned of these as the ship of state was deserted by an unseemly scramble for the lifeboats following, apparently, one collision too many with an easily observable and readily avoidable political iceberg perpetrated by a captain who had long since been operating the helm like a man with patches over both eyes. So we learned for the first, and very possibly the last, time of such, if you will, titanic talents as Mims Davies, Minister for Employment, Rachel McLean, Minister for Safeguarding, Will Quince, Minister for Children and Families. Oh not Will Quince. Surely not. How will we Quince? go on with this? Changes you're tired of Will this Quince. This changes everything. What are we gonna do? Surely do. not. Steady on, it gets worse. Selene Saxby, Parliamentary Private Secretary at the Treasury. Virginia Crosby, Parliamentary Private Secretary at the Wales Office. David Dugud, which might be pronounced like that, but really who cares? Trade envoy to Angola and Zambia. And tempting though it is to just read out the full list of 52 mutineers. No, sorry, 53. Hang on, I'm hearing 54. By way of padding out this week's monologue, because it's easier than continually rewriting the script to try and keep up with whatever mad nonsense is occurring now, we shall press on. Though we would like at this time to make it clear that if any or indeed all of this has been overtaken by events by the time you hear it, then you too can blame Boris Johnson. Certainly everyone else is. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. For we learned that a hefty cohort of the Conservative Party had only just learned what anybody who had paid any attention to a quarter century's worth of accumulating evidence had long since learned, i.e. that Boris Johnson was irresponsible, duplicitous, unprincipled, disorganised and in no respect psychologically or morally equipped for the office he held or arguably the office anybody has ever held. We learned that these very suddenly furious colleagues of the Prime Minister had learned this in perhaps suspicious proximity to two recent by-election losses, but better late than never. <laughs> But we learned, however, that the inspiration for this exodus intended, at least initially, staying put. And I think we have a sound effect of furniture being pushed up against a door left over from the end of Donald Trump's term. We learned that Boris Johnson, to bound elegantly from our earlier nautical metaphor to a theatrical one, was refusing to leave the stage, despite much of the audience leaving the building and much of the crowd that remained in the stalls directing a hail of empty bottles towards the figure capering in the spotlight. Uh, I cannot for the life of me uh, see how it is responsible just to, to walk away from that. But we did learn of some unlikely pockets of support for Johnson as he stumbled perilously over that line that separates the merely beleaguered from the downright embattled. We learned from the always entirely reliable source of Daniel Kavczynski, Conservative MP for Shrewsbury and Atcham, that the Prime Minister remained well regarded by his constituency's vendors of home cleaning appliances. When I was in Curry's, in Shrewsbury on Saturday buying a new vacuum cleaner, I had uh, 
Three employees in that building come up to me and said, you've got to stand by Boris. You've got to, you've got to back Boris. Now, you think there's a joke about a power vacuum coming, but there isn't, as Mr Kavchinsky has rather spoiled any such gag by using the word vacuum in the setup, which would dilute its impact in any prospective punchline. If he'd said Hoover or used some other brand name, we'd have been straight in there. We don't just crank this stuff out, is what we're saying. We learned eventually that Boris Johnson would acquiesce to the inevitable, but not until October, which may give him time to start a war with Scotland and declare martial law or something, which wouldn't really be significantly stupider than anything which has occurred in the last 72 hours, or indeed the last three years. I've travelled to every part of the United Kingdom, and in addition to the beauty of our natural world, I found so many people possessed of such boundless British originality. But we learned when we consulted the history books that unprecedented though this on-clinging seems, there is a precedent, sort of. Back in 2010, following a not entirely decisive UK general election, the then Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, seemed for a time disinclined to go. We also learned that one prominent commentator of the time channelled widespread outrage at the wretched, ridiculous and undignified spectacle of a Prime Minister barricading themselves into Number 10 despite clearly becoming surplus to requirements. Twelve years ago, on the op-ed pages of The Telegraph, this upstanding sage spoke for a bewildered nation with solemn and stentorian words which will now be read by Monocle 24's leaden irony desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. The whole thing is unbelievable. As I write, Gordon Brown is still holed up in Downing Street. He's like some illegal settler in the Sinai Desert, lashing himself to the radiator like David Brent, haunting the office in that excruciating episode when he refuses to acknowledge that he has been sacked. Isn't there someone, the Queen's private secretary, the nice policeman on the door of number 10, whose job is to tell him that the game is up? You tell us, Boris Johnson, for it was, inevitably, Boris Johnson who wrote that. You tell us. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much there to Andrew Muller. And there was Land of Hope and Glory as we were talking about. Last the problems already. <laughs> Excuse me. Having a little choke there. Choked up, perhaps, at the prospect of this man leaving. Um, but it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere doesn't, soon. does it? No. And that in itself is terribly dangerous. Don't know if you saw the New Statesman piece by Harry Lambert. He said that this is, in fact, a constitutional coup. Mm. Uh, the fact that Johnson is now moving everything to stay on for as long as he possibly mm. can and what damage, as John Major warns, mm. could be done mm. in that time. Well, what damage could be done, what stasis might uh, uh, affect various government departments where people can't move forward because they don't want to bind his successor with, with big decisions uh, at a time when, you know, war in Europe, massive economic crisis in Britain, rising interest rates, um, we have to have a government that's working and it seems very hard to work out how Boris Johnson is going to control that as a sort of defeated Prime Minister. Um, I do think that uh, he is a, a, a great uh, uh, believer in, in boosterism and uh, finding uh, 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 things that 
will work for him. And this feels like it works for him very well. Come October, will he want to go? Will he want to stay on? Will there be some crisis somewhere in the world that will mean changing a prime minister is not a good thing? I'm sure I'm sure he will go. I, I don't think... Uh, I think it would be dangerous to, to suggest that he won't leave, but I, it, it feels feels like a mess, doesn't it? It, oh, feels, it feels like no one's no one's actually steering the, the ship of state of, of the UK. There's a, a piece in the Financial Times this morning. Uh, good news for him, how much he's going to earn uh, when he stands down as Prime Minister. Famously, he hasn't been able to uh, live to the standard to which he's accustomed on the Prime Minister's salary, which I think is about £160,000 sterling uh, a year. Uh, he's likely to get, the Financial Times reckons, a million pounds or more as an advance for his book, which I'm sure will have uh, one account of what happened last week. <laughs> may not be the same as, uh, as the account understood by other people. Uh, and then when it comes to speaking, uh, he's probably going to get six-figure fees for speaking, particularly in America, uh, where he's still very highly regarded, um, particularly by the Republican Party, uh, admired by Trump supporters, the paper says, for delivering on Brexit and love for his quintessentially English style of delivery. Presumably he may get his newspaper column back. He had a weekly column in the Telegraph newspaper here, which uh, paid him, I think, uh, two. 150,000 a year or something like that. So he's going to be rich when he's out of, of number 10. So he can have more gold wallpaper and more Lulu Little um, <laughs> over-the-top decorations in whichever house he's going to, to live in when he finally leaves his uh, his state-owned flat. Well, and that's one of the reasons people say he's not leaving, is he hasn't actually got anywhere to go no, at the moment no. because his house is in Oxfordshire's rented out. Yeah. I think there's no London place. Uh, and, of course, he was looking forward to hosting his wedding party at Chequers, yeah. the grace and favour country pile. That Which he friend... has had the good sense to to cancel. That's not now, uh, not now going to happen. Yes. Uh, there's lots in the papers, of course, about who will take over and the, the, the runners and the riders. Uh, a long list at the moment. Clearly, three or four of them are, are, are probably going to fall out pretty quickly. Um, Rishi Sunak seems to be leading, according to the papers, uh, this morning in London. Though the FT have an interesting lead story about uh, uh, Boris Johnson uh, accusing uh, Rishi Sunak of, of, well, being a treacherous bastard, uh, huge anger at number 10 over his resignation, seen very much as the thing that, that, that chipped the wall and, and started the, the collapse. Uh, Sunak accused of treachery as he enters the Tory leadership race. Matthew Paris, uh, very uh, senior British commentator, former Member of Parliament, fantastic writer and thinker. And very uh, good friend of us both. Indeed, argues that, that really only Rishi Sunak is credible uh, to become the new Prime Minister. Interestingly, of course, and, and this didn't get so much coverage yesterday because there was so much else going on, but uh, Keir Starmer and his deputy, Angela Rayner, the leader of the British Labour Party and deputy leader of the Labour Party, have been cleared in a probe as to whether they broke COVID-19 rules when they were visiting Durham. Durham police have cleared them, and, and Keir Starmer, of course, had said that he would resign if, if he had a, a fixed penalty notice served to him, so he doesn't have to go. Now, what I thought was really interesting, uh, again, a small detail on this story, but uh, Keir Starmer was filmed through a window mm. uh, having a beer at this work uh, do. Uh, it turns out the person that filmed him was the son of James Dellingpole. Now, Dellingpole, of course, uh, a, a well-known Tory supporter and, of course, 
good friend of Boris Johnson's. Yeah, and, one and, wonders how much of a coincidence yeah, that filming was. Yeah, an increasingly right-wing uh, writer in his, his columns in the, the Spectator uh, magazine here. It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, did you pick up that strange story last week about uh, Angela Rayner going to Glyndebourne? Yes, and, uh, and the snobbishness yeah. surrounding it, that, that yeah. because she's working class, she shouldn't be at the yeah. opera. Yeah, Glyndebourne, one of the, well, the, the, the granddaddy of Britain, British summer opera festivals, a fantastic opera house in uh, Sussex near Lewis. Uh, she went, she bought a ticket, paid £65, I think, and she was photographed in the beautiful gardens having a glass of champagne for which she was ridiculed, predictably described as a champagne socialist, by the uh, Conservatives. And it seems, it felt pretty depressing to me that someone going to the opera is mocked. Um, there was an, an episode a couple of years back when uh, uh, the then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, his friend Michael Gove and Ed Vasey, who was then uh, Minister of State for uh, Culture, went to hear The Ring Cycle, uh, Wagner's four operas at Covent Garden. They got to Das Rheingelt, the first opera. They were photographed by the Daily Mail, who did a big story saying how come they've got time to bunk off and go to the opera and wear black tie when they should be running the country. And they didn't get to go to any of the other three operas. So, again, you know, kind of rather sad. Let's... Uh, let's, let's kind of try and break this link with opera and, and snobbery. It's just great, great art form. And it was a pretty cheap attack by uh, by uh, Boris Johnson on, on Angela Rayner. Well, that is, I mean, that is a, a, a valid point there, talking about how do you make opera more accessible mm. then mm. To, to ordinary people? Well, I mean, it's not... Everyone talks about it being a very expensive art form. In fact, it's now considerably cheaper than West End tickets, uh, which are now, you know, in some cases, £200 for a ticket. It's much cheaper than ga- going to uh, a, a, a good seated a football match. It's much cheaper than going to a big pop concert like the Rolling Stones or Elton John or, or uh, 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 the summer pop festivals that happen here. So it's not that it's expensive. There are also a lot of very cheap seats at the Royal Opera House, uh, at English National Opera, at Opera North and Leeds. You can get a ticket for £10 or £15 pounds and a pretty good sight line and very good sound. I think, I think people are frightened of it as an art form. I think uh, if you haven't been to the opera, you somehow imagine there are a whole load of rules that you've got to understand. Not true. It's just theatre. That's all it is. It's the most democratic form of theatre there is, really, particularly at know where, where, where operas are sung in, in English. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's plunge in there, because I think, I think if you love the theatre, you'll enjoy opera. Mm. Uh, and finally, it's not over till the fat lady sings. I mean, that's the, the famous line, isn't yeah. it? So who's going to sing and what will be Johnson's final demise? Yes, well, maybe Nadine Doris will organise uh, a chorus <laughs> outside number 10 when he leaves and perhaps she leaves the cabinet at the same time. Uh, Petra Trelawney, thank you so much for joining me here on Monocle on Saturday. Uh, and that's all we have for you on this edition of the programme. Thanks very much to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Rhys James. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.